Welcome to Wholeness and Holiness Podcast. Here we will deepen your understanding of human and spiritual integration so you can live the life of peace and fulfillment God has for you. I'm your host, Margaret Vasquez. I hold a degree in theology and am a licensed professional clinical counselor and certified trauma therapist. Join me weekly for practical applications of the spiritual life. No part of this audio is to be used as mental health treatment or clinical advice. Please see a licensed mental health professional for personal consultation. Hi, and welcome to Wholeness and Holiness Podcast. I'm your host, Margaret Vasquez. Welcome back if you're a returning listener, and welcome if this is your first time. Just as glad to have you here as well. And what we're going to be doing in this episode is digging a little bit into the biology of trauma. So now, of course, with the purpose of this podcast being um, human and spiritual integration, this series on trauma is really to provide us with an understanding of what happens in our our human person when painful experiences happen. And as I explained that a little bit, then what we're going to do is is look at some of the the applications of that, some of the truths that we can take away, just a few nuggets to carry forth um, out of this this basis of understanding about ourselves as a, a human person. And so let's take a little bit of a look at the biology of trauma. So first of all, it would make sense to define trauma. Used this, um, this word a lot already. So what does it actually mean? Well, the simplest definition, the one that I tend to like the most, makes a lot of sense, is that trauma is anything that overwhelms a person's normal ability to cope. And that would particularly be overwhelms in a, in a bad way, not overwhelms in a in a good way, right? So not like winning the lottery or finding out some wonderful news, but this is something that's um, a sense of uh, of powerlessness, a sense of um, pain, a sense of potential suffering or suffering itself, um, something that has fear associated with that. And so inherent in that definition that trauma is something that overwhelms a person's normal ability to cope is the idea that Trauma is very personal. It's very much a matter of the person's perspective. Whereas you and I might be in a situation together, I might be traumatized by it and you might not be based on how you experienced that same situation, which which could have to do with a lot of factors. It have to, could have to do with our past experiences. It could have to do with the information we have at the time. It could have to do with how powerful we we actually are in a situation if you're a lot stronger than I am and, and able to get out of the situation and I'm not or, or whatever the case might be. So so trauma is a matter of a person's perspective. It's a matter of a person's own personal experience and so it varies from person to person. And so for that reason it really doesn't make sense to to compare traumas or to assume that because we went through something with someone else that they had the same experience of it that we did. And so what actually happens on a biological level within us during a traumatic experience is that the the brain responds in a very certain way. So when we go through this very automatic response to trauma, 
that gets referred to as the instinctual trauma response. The first aspect of that is we're on high alert. And in that high alert state, we're basically trying to assess for, am I safe or am I not safe? When we determine that our, um, due to our perception, due to our perspective, we feel a sense of threat, we feel like we believe that we're not safe, then our natural response is to want to fight or flee. Um, but, but because we're unable to fight or flee for whatever reason, then what happens is um, we can actually go into um, a shutdown mode and um, then very different things can happen in that shutdown mode. We can feel like we're separated from ourselves, separated from the experience. It, uh, and the, the degree to which we feel separated uh, is very much dependent on, on the person and, and how much of a sense of threat they actually feel. But this, is, this gets shown in TV and the movies a lot of times. Sometimes um, a person can be experiencing the event um, kind of from that, uh, that perception that, uh, it's kind of like in slow motion. They'll even show that with the camera, um, the way it's being filmed at the time they'll show it or, uh, with this like kind of a wobbly camera, that really kind of wobbly pers- uh, kind of perception that they give you through the camera, how the camera's held and worked. Um, sometimes people even report that it feels like time is sped up. Sometimes people report that they actually feel kind of shrunk down, kind of the, it's referred to as the Alice in Wonderland effect. Um, uh, so there's a lot of different ways that we can experience uh, uh, how our perception of ourselves or of other people or of objects in the situation kind of take on this different perception. And what happens as this reaction to uh, to the traumatic experience is going on is it actually um, gets taken in through the brain and encoded down into the limbic system all the different parts and pieces of the brain have these very special tasks that they do very specific tasks and part of the limbic system which is the emotional center of the brain is the amygdala okay this isn't going to be super heavy duty biology, just giving you a little bit of this so you can understand that, that this is very real stuff that happens in our bodies. And so the amygdala's job is to learn to be afraid because there are a lot of things it's useful for us to be afraid of. We have to teach the little baby not to touch the burner when it's red and hot and um, we have to teach a small child not to run out into traffic. There are definitely things that it's it's important for us to be afraid of for the sake of of survival, for the sake of our own safety. So what happens during these traumatic experiences is because of how the hemispheres of the brain respond, the sight, sounds, smells, emotions, even our own body sensations can... Um, can kind of become almost like if you think of little landmines in the amygdala that are associated. So I mean, like the amygdala um, experiences these things as, oh, these things are really bad. These things are life and death. So I'll give you an example. It'd be if I was out driving today, so now it's a, it's a beautiful day in early June and um, it's going to be a warm day, even though it hasn't gotten 
quite warm yet, but it's, it's, it's warm, but it's not hot yet. It's going to get hot. It's a sunny day, um, bright blue sky, bright sunshine. And if I was out driving and I had, let's say coffee in my car, because that has like a very, you know, strong smell, stronger smell than if I had water in my car. So if I had coffee, if I had a certain song playing on the radio or a certain book I was listening to on the radio or on, you know, through my speaker system and was driving along and all of a sudden got T-boned by someone else who was driving a blue truck, then into my limbic system, the emotional center of the brain and into the amygdala, which is in that limbic system. Any of those things could become like little landmines. So sunny days, blue sky, uh, warm temperature, the smell of coffee, whatever I was listening to on the radio, blue trucks, blue trucks, driving, whatever the scenery was around me, any of these things can become sort of like little landmines so that what happens is then when I encounter those things again, I can feel that same set of emotions. I could feel anxious or I could feel fearful or I could feel angry maybe um, that, you know, if the other person, if I perceived that, that they weren't looking or weren't paying attention or, um, or if I, I could feel fearful, I could feel any of those emotions that are associated with that traumatic experience. And the, the very important thing to know is any of those emotions could come back to me without Without me necessarily understanding what triggered them, without me understanding that it was because I saw a blue truck or because it was a sunny day, just like that sunny day so long ago when I was in that accident, or it was the smell of coffee, just like I had coffee in my car. Sometimes we have that information. Sometimes we're, we're well aware that something is a reminder of a past traumatic experience, but it does not have to be that way. See, it's actually that our limbic system, the emotional center of the brain, sits on top of the brain stem. And we know from fifth grade science that what's going on in our brain stem, we're, we're not necessarily um, aware of on any level, thank the Lord. We don't have to be consciously aware of our digestion and our respiration and our, our pulse and all of these sort of things. Our brainstem takes care of that stuff without us having to think about it in a very conscious, intentional kind of way. And that's a good thing because we wouldn't get anything else done. We'd just be trying to survive. The same way the the brainstem operates on this very, um, this level that we're not necessarily aware of, this is the same way that the limbic system can operate. So these things can all be transpiring in the limbic system, our amygdala perceiving whatever reminder of a past traumatic experience, and then all of a sudden us being awash, sort of in all of these, these negative emotions, these painful, these disturbing emotions. And when we don't have, um, even when sometimes, even when we do understand where those emotions are coming from. It's because of this past experience. It can still be profoundly um, disturbing and uncomfortable and even overwhelming, but most certainly, especially that much more so when, um, when we're not aware of, gosh, all of a sudden, yeah, I mean, it seemed like I was having a great day. And then all of a sudden I walked into the coffee shop and suddenly I had like all this anger and I have no idea why. And, and when that, 
those kind of experiences, um, because of, uh, you know, if we have uh, kind of a lot of unaddressed trauma, that can really end up coloring our experience of ourselves and of the world. I remember for myself as a traumatized person before I went through um, through treatment and, and recovered, I remember um, people saying, have a good day, would really make me angry <laughs> because it felt like, I can't determine if I'm going to have a good day or not. It can feel like I'm having a good day. And then all of a sudden it feels like the rug gets pulled out from under me. So, uh, but at the same time, I knew that didn't make sense that I would have an angry response to somebody wishing me well. And so, um, so it made me feel very broken. It made me feel like my experience of life and of the world must be so different from other people that almost felt like an alien. And um, so felt felt very disconnected from others, felt very much less than others. And when we don't understand these things, it can, it can um, really threaten our sense of connection to others. Um, Stephen Porges, who's a neuroscientist, um, has a, a theory having to do with the brain and our response and traumatic experiences called the polyvagal theory. If you really geek out on this stuff like I do, I encourage you to look that up um, on YouTube. He has a very short video about it. It's about four minutes, but it, it'll give you a lot of information just on the brain and, um, and perception and how perception can become skewed. But I love um, in a training, I was just listening to some content by him several weeks ago. And, you know, I have a whole theory on human and spiritual integration that's based on connection. And so I, I really appreciated early on in his talk, when he was talking about safety, he, he said that safety isn't about the absence of threat, but safety is actually about connection. And, um, And I think that's so true. You know, it's kind of like the absence of threat just takes us to a place of neutral. It doesn't take us to a place of that sense of safety. It just, safety is a very, if you look at really fundamentally, I would say from a spiritual perspective, love, love is what, is what safety is about. Real safety. Whereas absence of threat is, um, is just kind of brings us to a neutral kind of at best kind of moment. Um, so understanding how the brain responds in traumatic experiences and um, a little bit more like we're kind of digging into now and then understanding how that can affect our perception of ourselves, of our experiences, of others, of the world around us. Um, there are a number of takeaways that, that um, I think is important for us to take a look at. And first and foremost would be that we can be left, quite honestly, we can be left um, kind of reactionary. We can be left in a stance of reacting instead of being able to be responsible. So reacting would just be acting when something else happens. So just, uh, whereas being responsible would be having the ability to respond so with responsibility, we're able to um, more comprehensively take into account all of the information, not just my perception of the the situation and not just my feelings. So we're left to be able 
um, to have a greater sense of freedom. We love to be able to respond um, really the way, the way the Lord wants us to. We're able to respond out of compassion instead of to react out of fear. So understanding that there are traumas can leave us reactionary for very biological reasons that are not about um, necessarily any sort of truth in the given situation on a particular day and instead might be very tied up in things from the past. I, um, I like to look at this as if somebody's acting like they're not in their right mind they're probably in their right brain because it's that right hemisphere of our brain where we continue to experience all time, even time from very long ago, as though it's still going on now. So knowing that we can be left reactionary for, for biological reasons can give us the freedom to choose otherwise, to choose the truth that we know, which is that we're God's beloved children. Um, a second thing would be the fact that I am not my feelings. I have feelings. You know, I think it was Descartes that was, the quote is, I think, therefore I am. A lot of times it seems, especially maybe nowadays, that um, the presumption is, I feel, therefore I am, because people people want to talk about, you know, gosh, it's emojis and everything that we respond to, to things online are all based on our feelings. How do I feel about this post? How do I feel about their response? And yet, I am not my feelings. I have feelings. And so if I'm not my feelings, then then what are feelings? You know, I was giving a talk to a group of uh, master's in counseling students a couple of years ago, honors students. And I said, have any of you, have any of you ever been taught what emotions are for? And everybody just started, started shaking their head. No. And and I agreed with them. I said, no, I, I, I never got taught that either. You know, we get taught what emotions are, but not what they're for. You know, we get taught emotions or, you know, there's happy, sad, scared, worried, pensive, you know, there's all these different emotions, all these different names of feelings, but, but what's their purpose? And the way I've come to understand it through the years of doing treatment, of doing counseling is that emotions are information. And that's important because if I have information there, I need information in order to be able to, to get along in the world in order to be able to, um, to respond to the world around me. I need information. And yet, um, if they are not me, then I can respond to that information instead of responding out of that information. So I'm going to say that again. So we can respond to the information we get instead of responding out of it. So what might that look like would be, I typically use this example when I'm working with somebody in, in therapy, I'll say, what if you were a diving coach? And cause I have a little bit of a fear of diving. So what if you're a diving coach and you know, I walk up to the edge of the pool and you say, look, Margaret, we're going to throw this noodle out there in the water, this big, you know, floaty thing device out there. And look, no one else is around and we're down at the deep end. And so nobody's going to come and, you know, jump in on top of you. And once you get in the water and that kind of thing. And as long as you like, you know, point your hands out together over your head and kind of arch your back and like lunge off the side of the pool and, 
aim to go over that noodle, you're, you're going to begin to get the feel of a dive. And, and this is how you do it. And you're safe. There's nobody around. Nobody's going to jump on you. You're in the deep end again, you know, and all of these things. So then I have the source of information of my, maybe my apprehension about diving, but it's only one source of information. Another source of information I have is that you're a certified diving coach and you're, you're not a, you know, some malicious person who's out to kind of trick me in some way or something, you know, you're out for my good. You're trying to be a big helper and everything. So then I have the information of my fear, my apprehension. So that sense of fear is telling me maybe there's something here to be cautious about. So I can respond to that information by, you know, verifying that we are at the deep end of the pool and there aren't, you know, people haphazardly running around this pool. So that information telling me to be cautious, I've taken into account, but I can counterbalance it by more information I have, which is that you're a good person. You're a helper. You're out for my good. And we can get this, we can get this done. So, um, so feelings are only feelings are information and they're important information. We don't want to stuff feelings. We don't want to ignore them. We don't want to not listen to them or all they're going to do is get louder and more raucous. Um, and yet because of trauma, they might be misinformation and knowing that they're only one source of information. Now I have the freedom to balance them with other information and not be locked into i you know, I am my feelings. And, um, so they, they must be gospel truth. And so at the core of this, our application, our greatest application for this in terms of human and spiritual integration is that there's only one absolute true source of information. And that is the Lord. And our greatest information that we have is that God is passionately in love with us He is all good. He's all powerful and he's all knowing. And truly, no matter what someone has done to me in a hurtful way that's traumatized me, they've been acting outside of his will. It's never, it was never his will that, that I get hurt. And yet no matter what I have done or what others have done to me, the Lord will ultimately use it for my good whether it's in this life or the life to come. He's that powerful. He's that all good. He's that all knowing. And he's that passionately in love with you. And so take that into, into your day and take that into your heart as the greatest source of information that you can possibly have. May the Lord give you peace. Thank you for joining me for today's show. Please subscribe and share and check us out on wholenessandholiness.com. Follow and like us on social media. And to learn more about Sacred Heart Healing Ministries, please go to sacredhearthealingministries.com.